welcome to the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. Listen in as co-hosts Ted Stank and Tom Goldsby take a leap onto the ships of supply chain, crowd surf into the long lines of meeting holiday demand, and wade into the depths of warehouse inventory buildup. They'll cover all the relevant and current topics blocking the canal of your minds and discuss industry issues that keep you up at night. If you enjoy the show, download and subscribe to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management, wherever you listen to podcasts. Without further ado, let's begin our show, where you'll hear what you'd least expect from the people you want to hear it from the most. Our co-hosts, Ted and Tom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fifth installment of Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. I'm here with my good friend, Tom Goldsby. We're going to talk about some of the topics of the day. Hard to believe, by the way, that as of a few weeks ago, if I were to tell you that the COVID pandemic and its impact on supply chain management were not the front page topic today, you probably would have laughed at me and said, you know, that's either crazy or a good thing. Unfortunately, uh, that is the truth today. COVID's not the front page topic as it relates to supply chains, and we have some other dark clouds that we'll need to talk about. Tom, let's talk COVID first, because there is some good news on COVID. What are you hearing about what's going on with the pandemic and how it impacts the supply chain? No, you're right, Ted. Just a few weeks back, I mean, Omicron was was dominating. It certainly seems like it's retreating now, which is a wonderful thing. It seems like New infections, hospitalizations, and deaths are all down and here in the United States, but also around uh, most of the rest of the developed world. And as you point out, that's great news uh, for us as individuals and society, also very good for business and our supply chains. I've long said that as the pandemic goes, so go our supply chains, because as we know, the pandemic altered how we lived our lives, what we spent money on, put real stresses on our supply chains as we went toward goods and away from services. It seems like we're going to be free to get back more to experiencing services. And, you know, one data point that I've been watching very closely for two years now is the Transportation Security Administration, TSA, boarding numbers for all the airports around the United States. And it was just such a precipitous drop this time two years ago as people were going about their normal lives and taking spring break vacations and business travel. And then it just dropped to virtually nothing. I think those were some of the most provocative photos I ever saw was seeing like the the Las Vegas airport completely empty, JFK completely empty. Yeah. And those numbers really depicted it. I've been watching those TSA boarding numbers and they're getting back very close to where they were in 2019. That's a real strong indication to me that people are getting out and traveling, maybe not as much internationally just yet, but at least domestically. I've been on some planes lately and they've been jam packed and also those corridors in the airport concourses jam packed. So that's very promising, but uh, it does mean that maybe it helps to alleviate some of the stresses on our supply chains. Maybe we can catch up a bit. Yeah, you know, at a macro level, that's actually the way expenditures are tracking as well. Service expenditures are definitely on the increase. Goods expenditures are coming down a bit. Just saw recently, not to get political here, but in traditional red states, expenditures for restaurants and food and beverage are back to 2019, although in traditional more blue states, still lagging by about 30, 40 percent from 2019 levels. But 
you always hesitate and breathe deeply when you say something like this, but barring any additional surge, I think that we are starting to see some normalization. Warm weather comes, people being more outside. I know it's just a scary thing, but way back, Tom, way, way back in the early summer when different media outlets were pressing you and I to say when this was going to end, we were jokingly saying sometime late spring, early summer, and you put a stake in the ground mostly in jest, saying April 28th. That was pre-Delta and pre-Omicron. And I think that you and I have talked about this enough to say that an additional surge, I think, adds four months to that prediction. If you think that we had Delta and Omicron after our prediction of April 21st, I think if you added four to six months or so to that, I think that might be a good number to think we might start seeing some kind of easing of the disruptions in the supply chain. No, you're right. And I've learned to put asterisks you know, next to any estimations because it really does depend. And I was watching 60 Minutes over the weekend and they mentioned this term Delta Cron. So apparently there's a hybrid out there that's fortunately not manifesting in any substantial way, but it's something that CDC is tracking and Hopefully it doesn't uh, become a serious threat of any kind. And if our lagging indicator is the number of ships off the L.A. Long Beach ports, I think we're somewhere in like the mid-50s right now. Yeah, the number is about half of what it was from what I understand. I mean, I think that we can say that there is at least some evidence that some of the supply chain disruptions that were caused by COVID seem to be showing signs of easing. However... The world doesn't exist just on one crisis alone, right? We seem to be really good at putting in lots of other ones. The big news over the last couple of weeks, of course, is the terrible situation in the Ukraine, the Russian-Ukrainian war. Lots of interesting impacts on supply chain that come out of that. Of course, we're all feeling it at the gas pump already. Russia is the world's largest exporter of petroleum products, not necessarily to the United States, but the impact that it has on global markets and price that we're seeing at the pump. I was on a road trip this weekend, left on a Thursday evening and filled up at the pump and it was about 319 or 329. And coming back on Monday, we were lucky to find something at $4 and most was at around 459 and it's higher than that today. 30% of the world's wheat comes from Russia and the Ukraine, 20% of the world's corn, a majority of nickel that goes into a lot of green technology and a lot of other technology like steel comes from Russia. So our supply chains, once again, are getting shaken in ways that maybe a lot of supply chain managers don't really realize yet until we start seeing uh, the shortages. Yeah, you're right. You know, I think a lot of us on this side of the water here in the States would say we're fortunate to be much more energy dependent than we've been in the past. And also in terms of corn and wheat and, and some other vital commodity breadbasket items, we can be largely self-sufficient. But these are global markets, you know, and when you see a significant producer offline or not allowed to export, you know, it's going to cause ripple effects. And, you know, even some of those domestic suppliers are going to be uh, intrigued with going after the global prices, and, you know, offloading some of that comment. Also, I think that's important to note that Ukraine and Russia have some pretty significant shipping ports in their own right. And I've been hearing about hundreds of ships being held captive in Ukrainian and, and Russian ports. And that means thousands of crew members that are displaced. And so, you know, that really alters the dynamics. I think as the world's come to appreciate these last couple of years, it's, uh, you know, it's a common system that we rely upon. And you had a snag in one uh, pocket of the world, it's going to impact the rest of us. 
That's right. And some interesting things on the other side of the equation, from a geopolitical standpoint, up until very shortly, most people had thought that the international order of Western democracies was unraveling somewhat. If anything, this current crisis has unified the Western democracies like never before. That potentially is a positive as it relates to international trade, certainly in security. We may not have yet seen the next chapter in this conflict um, from a supply chain standpoint as it relates to hacking. So stand by for that as well. Yeah, cyber scares the heck out of me. I got to be honest. I've been a little bit critical. I think U.S. seems to be very defensive and doesn't take an offensive. But again, we'll save that for another day. Hey, speaking of this topic, we are going to have a focused podcast uh, looking at the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the implications on supply chain. We're going to host Marianne Wanamaker who's our very own econ professor here at UT Knoxville and heads up the Baker Center. Uh, you may recall her from an earlier podcast. We're going to bring her back into the program to talk about some of these larger implications. Hey, Todd, I've been wanting to share a, a little bit in the past month. I have been out and about, as I indicated. I uh, went to a couple of conferences. Our guest today, Alan Amling, we'll get to him in just a moment. But he and I uh, attended the Reverse Logistics Association meeting in Las Vegas Back in February and then toward the end of the month, I went to the Retail Industry Leaders Association. And it's been great for one thing, just to get out there and engage in person, you know, to obviously great presentations and speakers. But the networking has been so rich and it's just been great to meet face to face again. You know, Tom, just to mention that point, we hosted our Global Supply Chain Institute Executive Advisory Board meeting back in February face to face for the first time since January of 2020. And man, it was just great to have everybody back again. You could just feel the release of emotions of everybody being back face to face to be able to make those network connections and see old friends. Yeah, just the level of engagement is just off the charts, you know, and I, I think it's something that we took for granted pre-pandemic. I don't know that we're going to take it for granted again, but the reason we were hitting the road was to, to get a better read on e-commerce returns. I know that's been a topic we've brought up from a time to time, going into the holidays, coming out of the holidays, and some eye-popping numbers uh, have come out. The National Retail Federation says 21% of U.S. e-commerce merchandise was returned last year, and, and much, much higher in some segments. I mean, we often look toward apparel as having much higher return rates than, than other sectors. Uh, and it's just incredibly costly. And it was interesting to get two different perspectives. When we went to the Reverse Logistics Association meeting, you've got stakeholders from around the returns management problem. You know, they understand it. They've got a grasp of the economics. And then meanwhile, at the retail leaders group, they are aware of the volume. They're aware of the cost, the impact on customer experience and also the sustainability implications, but really struggling to get a grasp of it. And uh, hey, you know, that's the topic that we're undertaking here at UT in our Advanced Supply Chain Collaborative. And, and that's where uh, I think we might want to pick up with our guest today. We do have a guest who uh, happens to be working with you on a little project on re returns logistics as part of our advanced supply chain collaborative. And so it brings me great pleasure to introduce our guest and good friend, Alan Amling. Alan is a University of Tennessee Global Supply Chain Institute Distinguished Fellow. He's also CEO of Thrive in Advance. And in his side job in his past, he worked 27 years at UPS, retiring as vice president of corporate strategy and advises a number of startups in the supply chain tech space. So Alan, 
given what you're working on with Tom and the things that you're seeing in your consulting life and what you've seen from your past in UPS, tell us what you're thinking about in terms of urban logistics and returns and kinds of struggles that you see companies having. First of all, thanks for having me on today. I'm excited to be with the uh, dynamic duo. So yeah, the disruption in last mile logistics, it's absolutely fascinating to me. You know, Growing up in the logistics industry over the last 27 years with UPS and then my time at UT, I have never seen disruption in logistics like we're seeing right now. And there's a difference, right? There's the the chaos that's going on in the end-to-end supply chain, the geopolitical issues, the backups of the ports and all that. What I tend to focus on is that last mile, everywhere from what's happening from fulfillment to delivery to door. And then what I'm working on with Tom, increasingly the issues around returns. And I'm working with some startups in the space. You know, what's what's really fascinating to me is a lot of us got into supply chain kind of happenstance. We didn't think about supply chain necessarily when we were in high school, like I'm going to, I'm going to be a supply chain manager. We just kind of get into it. And now what I'm finding is that a lot of the new people coming in are coming in with really specialized skills. I was on the phone with a startup the other day who has a team that worked on the launch of the iPhone and they're working on, on these logistics problems. And the amount of money, $24 billion in the first three quarters of 2021 that was venture capital that was focused on supply chain technology companies, whenever there's a great challenge like we're facing right now, it invites solutions. And that's why I'm so excited about what's going on in our industry. Yeah, as you point out, Alan, just so much going on. And uh, Ted alluded to the work that we're doing in Last Mile. I think a little bit ambitious last year, maybe overly ambitious when we talked about trying to understand the economics of urban logistics. Maybe you can share with the group a little bit, uh, kind of a high level, what we uh, were looking at and, and what we brought back. Yeah, so what we did is we kind of broke down, we created a, a framework for what's happening in Last Mile Logistics. and and really mapped that transition from centralized distribution to regionalized distribution, and then all of the new methodologies for getting packages to homes. For decades, it's been an oligopoly, you know, something that I I could never say when I was at, at UPS, but it was like, you know, three companies doing the majority of last mile deliveries. Now just look outside your window and it's a lot of different companies coming in. But the last mile is completely changing. And, you know, Tom and I, we were going crazy last year because just when we thought we had it figured out, it changed again. During the pandemic, we saw some of the biggest fundamental shifts in last mile delivery that we've seen in decades. So some of the big trends, the movement to ship from store. You had small package carriers. They had reduced capacity. They were limiting shipments. They were raising prices. Retailers had no choice but to innovate. And one of the big innovations were, hey, we're going to leverage the inventory in our store. 
And that set off a whole nother layer of kind of unplanned reactions in the market. Most notably, delivery times got shorter, not longer. And so kind of the standard has for the last decade has been two to five days. That doesn't cut it anymore. And that's all because inventory is being pushed closer to the consumer. And then you've got Amazon investing 60 billion plus in supply chain over the last few years, building out their network of delivery stations and moving more and more of their delivery to their own contractor and gig delivery networks. And so all of that has really changed the whole landscape of last mile delivery. Yeah, for a lot of convenience items, the big buzzword today is sub-same-day delivery. Two to four-day delivery doesn't cut it. It's sub-same-day. Yeah, and in that $24 billion that's been thrown out to supply chain technology companies, a lot of it's smart money, some of it not so smart. And one of the things that is, is really interesting, whenever you're in kind of an unusual state right now. I, I do think that uncertainty is going to be the rule going forward. But, you know, right now, the logistics market with the demand and the pricing power and the capacity limitations and the money that's being thrown in, there's a lot of changes that both incumbents are making and startups are making that we're not going to really be able to separate the winners from the losers until the tide goes out, and then it's going to be apparent. And like you were saying earlier in the podcast, I think that's going to start happening towards the latter half of this year. So, Alan, really interesting stat that Tom brought up about 21% returns, particularly from the e-commerce market. By the way, happy to say I just ordered a pair of Cole Hans from Zappos that came in fit perfectly and I'm keeping them. I'm not returning them. So. <laughs> Meanwhile, Zappos kind of helped to create the beast, right? I mean, they, they were did. open about five, buy four pairs and keep any that you want. Uh, right. Exactly. So crazy change, all kinds of fragmentation in the outbound last mile market. Tell us what you're seeing in the returns marketplace. I assume that companies completely have their arms around that. No problem at all, right? <laughs> yeah. You know the answer to that. No, it's been a real challenge. You know, the focus has been on just getting product out and not as much on, okay, what about all these returns that are coming back? And it's not only a process issue, a cost issue, it's increasingly becoming an environmental issue because more and more products are ending up in a landfill. And so this is a volcano that is brewing right now and is ready to blow. And Tom and I are digging in here to try to understand what's happening in the marketplace. And what we're seeing is there's a lot of different companies working on pieces of it. So Tom and I break down the market into, you know, what do you do to reduce returns in the first place? Are you initiating returns? How are you getting it? from the consumer into the supply chain? How do you process it? And then what are all the disposition options? What we're finding is that there's some real innovation in parts of the supply chain. For example, I came across a company that is trying to make it super easy to return your product because one of the things they're keyed in on is how long a product, especially a perishable product, product like a fashion item 
sits with the consumer. If you can make it easier, you can actually reduce the inventory needed by that retailer and really impact their financials. And so he has a system where you don't need a box, you don't need a label, you just put it outside your door. They send a gig driver over to pick it up. They take a picture of it. The timestamp in the picture is the label. And then they bring it back into the system and consolidate it. You know, the economics behind models like that are still being worked out. But that's an example of some of the real innovation that we're seeing in this space. And that gets us excited. But the truth of the matter is, most companies are still dealing with returns with old, outdated processes. And it's a real opportunity area. You know, speaking of the innovation that's taking place, I just can't help but seize the moment here. I'm looking out my office window here on the beautiful campus, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and there's a wheeled robot delivering food, presumably to a student on campus. It looks like this robot's chasing down a tour group. In fact, they're a little bit horrified uh, at the mere sight of it. It just speaks to the innovation going on out there. And I know, Alan, your reason for being is really to push innovation of self and organization. And you've got a new book coming out, I think next week, March 16, titled Organizational Velocity. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the premise of the book. What was the motivation behind it? And uh, what are your thoughts about this premise? Yeah, thanks for asking, Tom. So let me just back up. When I was at UPS, I was one of those crazy ones that was pushing innovation all the time. And, you know, I, I would say that UPS is one of the most innovative companies, but in any large company, it is a struggle. And one of the things that I really wrestled with is, why is it that we've known about disruptive innovation, about incumbents being displaced by more nimble startups? We've known about that now for 25 years. Why is it that the Fortune 500 is still turning over at a record pace? Why can't incumbents move at the speed of change. And that's what really drove me to go back to school to get my PhD later in life, which is absolutely a crazy thing to do. But the motivation was there. And I ended up spending five years talking to corporate leaders, digital leaders, colonels and generals in the military, trying to crack the code on decision-making and conditions of uncertainty. And it's what led me to this new book, Organizational Velocity. It's based on two fundamental premises. One is that the world is not going to become more certain. It's going to become less certain. With all the new technology, geopolitical uncertainty, climate change, generational differences, you know, a number of factors that it's based on this fact that stability and being able to plan detailed plans five, 10 years out, that's a thing of the past. Playing defense is a thing of the past. Second, it's based on, do you want to have a company that is built to last? Not everyone does. Some people are trying to maximize short-term value. That's really not what organizational velocity is about. It's about, okay, if you want to survive and thrive in this environment, what are some things that you need to do? 
And that's what I pulled from all this research and I share the insights. You know, the big epiphany that came out is that moving at the speed of change is a choice, not a circumstance. And for so many companies, it's, oh, we can't move quickly because of this or that. We're large, we're multinational. We've got all these product lines, a matrix organization. Yeah, there's some really big companies that are moving at the speed of business. And the key idea behind organizational velocity is that you have to have the ability to cast a wide net to observe all the changes that are going on. Companies are typically pretty good at that. Being able to accept those changes, determining how they impact your business and what you should do, and then to act on it. It's a learning paradigm, but in order for it to be successful, I tried to get underneath it a couple levels because there's a lot of companies that do it and they struggle. The book really uncovers you know, what are the hidden barriers that companies are facing. That is fascinating, Alan. You have lived an extraordinary life and seen a lot of things. Professor at UT, consultant, former oligarch, and now best-selling novelist and (laughs) author. Just keep knocking off the titles, which is fantastic. Alan, it is so great to have you on the team and so great to have you with us on this podcast. Folks, be looking out for Alan's book. Be looking out for some of the results of the research that he and Tom have been doing. One of our white papers already out of our our Global Supply Chain Institute is authored by Alan about blockchain and when it's appropriate, when it's not. A whole other topic area we could talk about with you, Alan. Given that our listeners want to have a 30-minute max, we are going to wrap. Tom, why don't you take us home? Yeah, no, I just want to thank Alan again. I tell you what, it's such a pleasure to work with Alan. You know, we, we think of ourselves as, as practical academics, and Alan has come into our world as an academic practitioner, and we just work so well together. It's just great to have him on the team. And just uh, making folks aware that uh, we're going to be coming back at you again with another podcast, with another guest, another topic, and also be looking out for that special podcast looking at the Russian-Ukrainian conflict and the supply chain implications. We're going to get to work on that right away, too. We're trying to keep on top of an incredibly uncertain world that Alan referred to, and I think he's absolutely right. Our organizations need velocity, and and so do we as individuals. So with that, uh, we'll put the wraps on another episode of Tennessee on Supply Chain Management. We thank our listeners out there. We, We sense it's a growing legion of you, which just gets us so excited. And we welcome your comments and questions. Please send those to gsci at utk.edu. And Ted, that puts a wrap on another episode of Tennessee and Supply Chain Management. Thanks for listening to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe via your favorite listening platform, such as iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Leave a reply in our show notes at gscipodcast.com or email your questions to gsci at utk.edu. Join us next time in our pursuit to prove that supply chain management is more fun than you think. 